gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We have a return guest today whose whose career has really basically only gone downhill since he briefly was my colleague at National Review over a decade ago. <laughs> um, but you know, we're trying to get him off uh, you know, uh cat food and food stamps. So um, and he's got a new book out, which I have to say, I I I beg for forgiveness at the beginning. I'm only about 40 pages into, other than uh, index b- bombing. Um, uh, but it's great so far. And I'll talk about actually some of the stuff I read in the beginning. Uh, the kingdom, the power and the glory American evangelicals in the age of extremism by Tim Alberta. He's been on here before for American carnage and for a PC wrote, I believe for the Atlantic, that was sort of a preview of some of the themes that he expanded on in this book. He's, uh, I don't know. You're an Atlantic guy right now. You're still right. Or no, you're a former Politico guy. I'm looking at your bio. Are you currently at the Atlantic or are you just like your own one man band now? Yeah, no. Well, yeah, I, I move around so much. Nobody can keep track. But yes, I'm at the Atlantic now. What's cool is that you actually do carry one of those hobo broomsticks with the kerchief tied at the end of it, which is kind of a cool look. I'm glad that's coming back. Bringing it back. All right, Tim, uh, enough with the, the jocularity. Uh, what's your book about? We can do some more jocularity if you want. I, we'll I, we'll I, circle back to the I'm, jocularity. I'm all for the jocularity. Yeah. I, I, Jonah's jocularity uh, could be its own like little side hustle podcast. The book is about, boy, where do I start? I mean, Jonah, the book is basically just my trying to come to terms with, uh, with my own faith tradition. And, and I don't just mean Christianity uh, at large. I mean, specifically the white evangelical tradition. Um, you know, I, I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised you know, like literally inside the church. Um, my mom was on staff there. I like grew up, you know, inside the church, uh, lived there basically inside the church. And, you know, that was my community. That was my tribe. Those were my people. And I think, you know, as I grew older, my faith never faltered at all. But I, I really started to feel disillusioned with institutional Christianity and, and a lot of what I saw and what I heard. And I really, I bit my tongue about it for a long time. It, 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 I think it was getting worse and worse, but I was just one of these folks who, you know, we, we know a lot of people like this and we understand why they do what they do. I, I was sort of just um, reflexively defensive of the people around me. You know, whenever I would hear those criticisms, I would process them as attempts to mock and to marginalize people like my parents. And I, I it really took... A couple of things. It took the Trump presidency. Um, it took COVID nineteen, and we'll talk about those things, obviously. But ultimately, it took the death of my dad uh, to really, I think, grapple with, in a, in an honest way, grapple with what had gone wrong here, and, and and to really think about what I might do about it, and and, and how I might, you know, uh, use my my meager journalism skills to try and investigate this and explain it because i think obviously i'm not alone in feeling this way there's an entire sort of movement across particularly my generation of evangelicals who are you know quote unquote deconstructing their faith or who have become ex-evangelicals or whatever kind of language you want to use this is not an isolated phenomenon there's a lot of folks who have these same feelings and i felt like this was an opportunity for me to to try and uh 
shine a light into the darkness here and, and explain some things. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't come from the same faith background, um, but I spent 25, 30 years of my career defending evangelical Christians, you know, to basically to my tribe of like secular New York liberal types, you know, and that kind of thing. And I remember in the mid, early, it was in the early 90s, the New York Times Magazine had their first big sort of gorillas in the mist expose about evangelical Christians and how strange and otherworldly they were. And the famous line in it, I believe it was in the New York Times Magazine piece, was um, something, something and easily led, like uneducated, something, something and easily led. And then like right wingers like me, you know, I was a very junior one back then, went nuts. And it was became a talking point for like 10 years about the disdain of the mainstream media for this vast swath of American life. And, um, and I'm still reflexively inclined to defend evangelicals and the stuff, but like, you know, Mike Johnson, the speaker of the house, uh, he recently said, people want to know what my positions are. And I say, well, that's easy. Just look in the Bible and you'll find my positions. I've been looking, I, I can't figure out what that, what his position is on blockchain or Bitcoin in there and um which is to say that it feel like just to bring it back to your 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 you know your argument is like some of the christian on the sleeve stuff and i'm not saying he's a fake christian i think he's a sincere christian i just think it was a dumb answer but uh the a lot of it is now political signaling rather than something that comes from a deeper and more important place i think that's yeah political signaling is probably the the gentlest way to put it. I mean, look, like we I, I think here's the fundamental problem in some sense, Jonah. We have now huge swaths. You talked about, you know, how this is a huge swath, the, the evangelical movement. You know, we're talking about tens of millions of people here, right? And so we don't want to caricature, we don't want to summarily dismiss or, or or stereotype or generalize. I think one of the 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 root problems here that I've run into time and time again is that for too many of these folks now, because of the disproportionate media consumption habits, because of the ways in which uh, politics have come to permeate just every facet of our lives, a lot of these folks who should be interpreting politics through the lens of their faith are instead interpreting their faith through the lens of politics. Mm -hmm. And so what do I mean by that? You know, like, so when you step into church on Sundays, if, if you're a, a church going Christian and you are hearing a sermon from your pastor about, um, you know, poverty, the least among us or, or, or about caring for the stranger or the alien. And, you know, and is your first instinct to plug that into a formula around what Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram we're talking about last night with the mass invasion and the caravans coming for the border, or is your instinct to when you're watching Fox News to be hearing what they're saying about immigrants coming, uh, you know, migrant caravans coming to the U.S.-Mexico border, and to be think processing that through what both Old and New Testament say about caring for the stranger. In other words, it's just this sort of inversion of priorities. And I think some of it, to be, to be fair, uh, to be charitable, I think some of it is really subconscious. I, I don't know that 
I don't know that a lot of people even realize that they're doing this. In fact, I've spent a lot of time around people who are doing this and who are, I think, genuinely uh, ignorant of it. They, they they just don't, they don't, it, because I think it's, it's a little bit like they say bankruptcy, right? It happens slowly and then all at once. Um, this is what's happened here. That It is a sort of spiritual bankruptcy and it has happened slowly for a lot of these people and then all at once and they don't even realize it. My favorite, but not in a sort of, I love it, but it's, I, it makes me despair anecdote along these lines, which I'm sure you've heard is from Russ Moore, where he talks about how pastors increasingly will say something about, let's quote scripture. I mean, like straight up, you know, the, the red letters, you know, about, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, golden rule or whatever, you know, like, uh, like straight up turn the other cheek kind of thing. And, um, people will come up to him afterwards and say, you know, you really should keep that, that politics stuff or that, you know, that woke stuff out of here. And pastor said, well, I'm, I'm literally quoting Jesus. And Moore says, you know, this kind of thing would happen a lot in the past, but usually when you pointed out that you were quoting Jesus, the response is, oh, I guess I got to get better with my biblical literacy. Instead, the answer that they get is, and Moore talks about this in his book, is, is um, well, that worked back in Jesus's time because that was a neutral culture. <laughs> and like, like pretty story, pretty sure the story of the treatment of Jesus is not one about a neutral culture. <laughs> nothing neutral, nothing neutral about it. You know, the passion of the Christ, there seems to be some stuff going on there, you know, um, was, they were, they were slightly hostile, uh, you know, it, and Jonah, it's amazing because, and I should say as a disclaimer that so Russ Moore um, is a character in my book, a, a reoccurring character as I sort of trace the arc of his uh, story as a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention who eventually sort of goes into self-imposed exile and really in many ways kind of loses his identity for a period of time because his identity, guys like Russ, you have to understand his identity wasn't as a Christian. His identity was as a Southern Baptist and, and you know, the, the, the Christian, you know, that they felt like they were sort of set apart, like everybody else blessed their heart, but we're really the ones who get it. And also he was sort of the intellectual godfather of that yes. movement. You know, I mean, he was the head of doctrine or something like that, right? I yeah, mean, the head of the Ethics and, and Religious Liberty Commission, which is uh, a really prominent public facing position yeah. there with the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, it's funny, like I, I will talk. Uh, with Russell and with other folks about that very thing you were just describing, which is to say that, you know, anyone who's done just just cursory Googling, much less any sort of deep historical study on the context of the New Testament, there there were few times uh, in human history when you were more out of step with culture, when when you were more likely to be to be persecuted, oppressed, killed. Uh, then as a first century Christian living under brutal Roman occupation and professing your faith in this man who said that his kingdom was not of this world, that he belonged to a different kingdom, a more powerful kingdom, and that you were pledging allegiance to him. You were not only subverting the Roman authorities, you were subverting the Jewish authorities. And, the, and, and these people were rounded up. They were treated horribly they were killed this is all documented historically and so to hear 
people now like Robert Jeffress, for example, the, the, the megachurch pastor from Dallas, who is such an outspoken ally of Donald Trump. And Jeffress is another character in my book who I spent a lot of time with to hear him say, well, basically, we are under siege. We Christians in America now are under siege. Uh, therefore, we don't have to kind of play by the rules anymore. Therefore, all bets are off. You know, we have to fight back. We need I think at one point he called Donald Trump, you know, the meanest, toughest SOB we can find. And that's who we <laughs> as Christians need. And it just doesn't pass the smell test. It doesn't, it doesn't square with everything we understand about not only the time and place and context of Jesus Christ, but about the actual teachings of Jesus Christ, which were very explicit. If you follow me, you will be persecuted, but you will turn the other cheek you will love those and pray for those who persecute you. And, and, and his own disciples knew that better than anyone. Peter and Paul and the rest, they were all killed. And yet in their letters, they're all saying the same thing. It doesn't matter how you're treated. This is how we are to go about treating everyone else. And somewhere along the line, that message, that part of the message at least, has been just almost excised from the rest. Rarely have... In the annals of history, the persecuted own three private jets, um, which <laughs> I just and I, and his defense is that it helps him spread the ministry, and I, I I get it, but like it's not quite a hair shirt kind of thing. Um, our mutual friend David French, uh, who's also a recurring character in in the book, I he used to make this point all the time is like the persecution is sort of part of the point Christianity. It's and this idea, which is not to say persecution is good right or 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 righteous or anything like that but like his point was always like if you're not running against the grain of the secular majoritarian culture at least a little bit you're probably not acting on your faith as robustly as you should be which I always thought was a sort of a good point of just sort of like it's a there's supposed to be some effort involved in being and being Christ-like right i mean that's what christians are supposed to be is is to emulate Christ as best you can. And, and that means taking the slings and arrows a little bit. And I just, this idea, I get it as a matter of, and we can move to the politics stuff. I get it as a political argument to be sure about, you know, we're being mistreated by our country and we're good people and we don't deserve to be, you know, looked down upon by Hollywood and all that. And that, those are good arguments as far as I'm concerned, but like, well, it depends the form of them, but in general, um, I don't get the the theological doctrinaire perspective on this about how um, we need to embrace this sort of secular goon in Donald Trump um, who manifests myriad unchristian like attributes and associates Christianity associates our faith with this behavior. Um, I just I. I has anybody actually gone and done the he's our King David argument in a morally and intellectually serious way that you've found like was worth engaging with? Honestly, no. And I've tried. I mean, look, look I, and here's the funny thing, Jonah, there's been a bit of an evolution on this or, or, or devolution, perhaps, uh, which is to say that, you know, in the summer of 2016, right after Trump had effectively clinched the Republican nomination for president, there were five or 600 evangelical leaders gathered in New York City at the Marriott Marquis Hotel for this big, like kind of private convening. Uh, and you have to remember at the time, 
Trump's great weakness in the in the primary had been with evangelical Christians, right? Uh, they they had not rallied around him yet. Th- this was pre Mike Pence. This was pre Supreme Court Justice List. Uh, he had he had a lot of work to do with evangelicals. So when he came to that room that day, and I was there at the hotel uh, talking with all these people, you had some folks that day who made the very uh, explicit, you know, King David. Um, King Solomon, uh, King Cyrus of Persia argument, basically this idea that, you know, well, God uses flawed people for his purposes all throughout scripture. And, uh, and, and by the way, all of those flawed people also have real, you know, great good in them. And, and, uh, and, and, and we see that in Donald Trump, right? That argument kind of slowly crumbled over time. And it gave way to something else. It gave way to an argument that actually the reason we need Donald Trump isn't because he's like God's flawed instrument. I mean, some people probably still believe that or say they believe it. But really, the reason we need Donald Trump is because he's not a Christian. The reason we need Donald Trump, and Mike Huckabee said this really explicitly in, I forget the exact quote, but it was pretty astonishing a few months ago. So basically, we need Donald Trump because he doesn't have to play by the rules. He doesn't, he's not bound by our Christian etiquette. He doesn't have to observe our Christian morals. And it's pretty astonishing, Jonah, to see the arc of that argument to go from, you know, whatever it was five, six, seven years ago from, well, you know, he's flawed. But in fact, uh, we see how there is sort of a divine spark in him and how, and how God is going to guide him and use him for his purposes. And now it's Robert Jefferson. No, he's just the meanest SOB we can find and we need the meanest SOB we can find. And Mike Huckabee saying, yeah, like let this let this guy off of his off of his leash and let him go punch some people in the face for us. Because, you know, WWJD doesn't apply to a guy who's not actually a Christian. Um, that in and of itself is a fascinating psychological transformation. And, you know, once you've gotten to that place where you say, look, I, you know, yes, I personally am a Christian. But I believe that my faith is now so endangered that I need to enlist someone to protect my faith who has no regard for it and who, in fact, is going to do things and say things that are antithetical to my faith. In other words, they're saying, you know, to protect, it's like when George W. Bush said, you know, to protect the free market, he had to violate free market principles. They're basically saying the same thing. They're saying, in order to protect Christian virtue, we must first do away with Christian virtue. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of. Aura frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her 
parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Right. And what's interesting to me about that is um, I mean, there are a bunch of things that are interesting, but just to stay on the theology before we get onto the politics part of this. Um, in 2012, there were not by no stretch all, there were plenty of evangelicals for Mitt Romney, right? Plenty, right? And plenty of them turned out to vote for him. And, and, and I think the anti-Mormon thing was a little overblown in the national discourse, but it was also real, right? I mean, it, there was a segment of this crowd that had real issues with a Mormon, not a real Christian, blah, 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 and all these kinds of things, even though on the, I've always argued that like, as a statistical matter, the people most likely to pull over and help you in a rainstorm when you have a flat tire, <laughs> Mormons are way at the, <laughs> overrepresented in that crowd, right? They're fundamentally decent people. I've always been wildly pro-Mormon. Even though I know, I guess I'm not supposed to say Mormon anymore, which I apologize for if anyone takes offense. Yeah, I just I just found that out recently myself. Yeah, so LDS. So, um, but the interesting theological thing to me is to say there's a huge problem with a splinter, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, heretical, non-Christian denomination, but a deeply moral and upright human being. That's a bridge too far. But an abjectly, essentially pagan, immoral human being, that's okay in the course of four years, right? And that's, that to me is sort of doctrinally, theologically, a kind of a fascinating, more irony than anything else. I, you know, so the first thing I thought about when you just made your first point was, um, I don't know if you recall the headline, there was a Babylon B headline a few years ago that said, uh, evangelical Christian mistaken for Mormon when treating everyone with kindness and respect, uh, something like that, uh, which was pre pretty perfect. Um, I think the second thing, Jonah, not to be a dead horse on the Robert Jeffress front, but again, Robert Jeffress in some ways is sort of an avatar of all of this. So Robert Jeffress was the leading anti-Romney evangelical uh, during first during the 2008 campaign, when Romney was kind of the conservative favorite, right? You know, Rush and Laura Ingram and everybody was fawning over Mitt Romney. And 
Jeffress at the time wasn't really well known yet. He was he was pretty new as the pastor of this mega church in Dallas, and he sort of built his celebrity in part around bashing Romney in in 08. Not a lot of people paid a lot of attention, but then by the time 2012 came around, he was doing like these public debates, he was giving speeches, he was coming to Washington and talking to reporters about it, and he really built this entire groundswell around this idea that like and he had this quote, it's in the book, uh, I forget exactly what it is verbatim, but he essentially says, we need to decide once and for all, like, isn't it important that our president be someone who reflects our Christian values, right? And who and who shares our Christian values. Um, and he was saying that in attacking Mitt Romney, someone who, yes, a, 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 a member of the LDS church is not considered to be a member of the uh, Christian faith, doctrinally speaking. But um, in terms of Christian values, Christian virtues, Christian ethics, Christian morals, right? You, you could, you know, if you held up a checklist of the Ten Commandments and held it next to Mitt Romney, you, this guy's doing okay, right? We're, yeah. we're thinking this is someone who, by and large, is at the very least uh, in keeping with and consistent with what you're asking for. And then that same pastor, Robert Jeffress, a few years later, on the night of the Access Hollywood tape, or I think maybe it was the day after the Access Hollywood tape, he goes on NPR and he gives this interview, just this bewildering interview where he says, well, you know, we're not electing a Sunday school teacher here, right? We, we need somebody to defend us. So, I mean, to call it irony is, um, you know, that's, yes, I, I think it's it's certainly ironic, but it's probably something far darker. Yeah, and I just, I so... I want to circle back to some of the theological stuff, but this just so the thing that comes across to me talking to you this time and also the last time we talked is like the 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 stages of development and 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 or devolution to use your word um, in all of this they track they're almost perfectly parallel tracks with my experience not as a Jewish guy or as a Christian um, but as like sort of a movement conservative guy right is that um these who you know i was doing freelance writing and television producer producing before the lewinsky stuff but you know i got sort of turbocharged into a lot of the stuff during that period where i actually believed the arguments that people made about bill clinton's low moral character and that you should have someone you know like the old line about how you know ronald reagan didn't even take his jacket off in the oval office right i mean i i thought that stuff was real and over the preceding, you know, 20 years, I was pretty invested in that argument about conservatism, about how, um, you know, there are a bunch of principles that we should see reflected in our leaders and blah, 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 blah. And then comes the Trump stuff. And at first, it's the exact same argument that you're getting from these guys about King Cyrus or David or whatever. It's transactional. It's binary choice. We got to go with this guy because the alternative is so bad because Hillary has horns and blah, 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 blah. And then. Yuval makes this, uh, my friend Yuval Levin, you know, he makes this point about how cynicism is actually really hard to sustain psychologically, that you, it's a sort of a gateway drug or a portal or like a Narnian wardrobe that gets you to change your position, but it's just a transition point because your brain can't over time um, tolerate the idea that you're doing something unprincipled. Right. I, I wrote about it in my last book about how like part of our lizard brain to think our leader has to be good. And if he's not good, we change the definition of good to fit the leader rather than require the leader to fit the definition of good. And 
And so like this process was happening in, in utterly secular conservative circles as well. I mean, like Bill Bennett who was a very good friend of mine for a long time. Um, he used to, before I would do his radio show, he would say, Hey Jonah, you know, you know, you can be a little body. We had a nice audience here. I don't want to, I don't want you to work blue. And you know, some of your jokes can be a little off color. And I was like, okay, no, no problem. Whatever. Fast forward to, to Trump. And I listening to his show and Bill is saying, I don't understand why people don't like Trump. Is it just because he's a little it, that he, he uses bad words sometimes and he's a little uncouth. Um, and this is a guy who wrote the book of virtues. Right. And it was, and this was sort of Bill's, I mean, Bill's a religious guy, but he was also sort of a more secular conservative sort of, these are values for all Americans, regardless of faith kind of guy. And it was the sort of the same arguments of, First transactional, then I kind of like his personality. He's entertaining to, hey, wait a second, but he fights to, he, no, he's actually this moral standard bearer. And so I'm just wondering, do you think the psychological transformation that, or the sociological transformation of so much of the right in sort of non-explicitly Christian terms and the transformation that's going on on the right in, in theological Christian terms is it the same phenomenon? Is it, it where, where does one leave off and one pick up? I mean, like, how do you, how do you disentangle them? Cause it's, for me, it's sort of like this radiation wave went out and people went through, lots of people went through this process, regardless of what their core philosophical positions were beforehand. And it just applied differently to the people who had different core philosophical positions. Or is that, is there something else going on? Do you, I'm, I'm, I know I'm yammering, but does that make sense? No, I mean, look, I, it makes perfect sense. And I think in a lot of ways, this is like the whole can of worms. I mean, we, we've got, um, <laughs> look, I, I, so I, in short, Jonah, I think that you're exactly right, that, that these things are really running parallel, that there are some uncanny similarities to uh, th these arcs that, that, that we've seen. Uh, both within sort of the more evangelical movement circles, uh, you know, reformed conservative uh, uh, Protestant circles, and the kind of movement conservative, you know, small government movement conservative circles. I think probably the only thing I would add to what you just said that really helps explain this, and that also differentiates the two a little bit, kind of turbocharging the one even more is this kind of um, persecution complex, the sort of martyrdom complex. So let me go back to what you said uh, at the outset a moment ago, because I think this will help clarify things. So, you know, I'm a child of the moral majority, right? I'm in my late 30s. Um, my dad was an evangelical minister. He was, you know, like when he went to seminary, my dad was an atheist and he became a born again Christian and left behind a career in finance and, and a lot of material success and basically was poor for like the next 20 years. And just so because he felt called to, to preach the gospel. And we didn't really talk politics at my house. The only thing we ever talked about in terms of politics was character. Like that was it. That, that was, you know, my dad was a, and my mom that were, were huge believers in this idea that like, you know, that that character is a prerequisite for leadership, especially political leadership at the highest mm -hmm. levels. And so, you know, the Lewinsky scandal was like I was, you know, in middle school, I suppose it was. 
and, and that was like a formative thing for me to see how my dad responded to it, how our church community responded to it. In fact, when George W. Bush was inaugurated, and I write this, I, I, I write about this in the book, my parents held a viewing party in our living room with people from the church celebrating not not a Republican president being sworn in, celebrating the return of morality to the White House. Like that, like that was a thing for them, right? When people can hear that and roll their eyes, but like there are people who still, in fact, sincerely believe that. And my mother is one of them. Uh, that's a separate book for me to write. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but what, what, what began to happen, Jonah, I think, and, and this is where I talk uh, in the early parts of the book about my relationship with my dad, who I was very close with and who, and who I, I loved dearly, but who we really started to diverge philosophically around the time of Trump's election because he knew that Trump was immoral. He would have preferred any of the other Republican candidates, but he also felt like, you know, Supreme Court justices hanging in the balance and he was and he was staunchly pro-life and he felt like, OK, I've got to hold my nose and vote for this guy. Fine. That's I, I, I have no issue with that. I know lots of people who did. But then once Trump was elected and once he started doing and saying things that you would have never defended uh, Bill Clinton or you would never defended anybody with a D next to their name if they were saying and doing these same things. And I would sort of get into it with my dad a little bit, and he would become defensive, defensive about Trump, but really more so defensive about himself. In other words, I think he would process attacks on Trump's character as ipso facto an attack on his character, right? That, well, you voted for this guy, so clearly you are also immoral. Now, that's not the case I ever would make, and I don't believe it's true. And I would just, you know, we'd go back and forth on this. And I'd say, Pop, listen, like, you're the one who taught me to know right from wrong. Like, don't be mad at me for acting on it. Like, clearly, I'm, what this guy is saying and doing, these are things that are wrong, right? We, morally, objectively wrong. But I think for people like my dad, there was almost this feeling. And this is where I think uh, the paths start to diverge even a little bit more. Like, conservatives in this country have felt like their way of life has been is under attack, like they're being displaced, like the liberal culture is coming for them. And that's a scary enough thing to get some of them to act in ways that they never would have acted otherwise. I think when you inject the religious component to it, in other words, for people like my dad, a lot of people I grew up around who felt like Christianity was in the crosshairs of secular America, that the government was going to come for them, that uh, that that really uh, religious freedoms were going to be eliminated and that their way of life w was, was, you know, was really endangered. Once you get to that place, I think suddenly you're, you start creating a permission structure for yourself to go along with things that you never would have gone along with otherwise. A and we talked about this last time, Jonah, but th this thing I just described is exactly why COVID-19 was so dangerous because when COVID came and all of these blue state governors started telling churches to shut their doors, even if it was just for like two or three weeks, that was like a sign of the apocalypse, right? For a lot of these people that, that this was the thing. And so in a lot of ways, what you described that kind of, you know, devolutionary arc, I think explains a lot of it, but I would add that persecution factor or the martyrdom factor almost for a lot of these people suddenly they feel like they're justified in going along with things or or enabling things that otherwise they never would have. So um, I was going to save some of the stuff about your dad till the end because 
uh, departed, but deeply beloved dads are a difficult thing to talk about. And I figured, yeah, save the opportunities for, for emotionalness where you, you see the exits. But since you brought them up, um, one of my favorite bits in the, in the prologue of the book is, um, the scene at your book party for American carnage. And, um, and you got all the swells there and everyone's, you know, yay, Tim Alberta. And, and your dad is having a great time holding court and he does, I know he was an evangelical pastor, but he sounds like a mensch. Um, he was a mensch. A a term of endearment from my people. And, um, he, uh, um, and at one point he, you know, clearly proud of you. And then he pulls you aside and says, um, in a week, none of these people will care about you. And, um, I loved that because that is very much, that's a lesson I kind of had to learn. It's the kind of thing that my dad believed, but I wish he had told me. Um, and, um, um, and why don't you just sort of explain that, that, you know, why that, you know, why you thought it was important to put that in there and we can talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, it was funny because I was kind of on top of the world at that point. I'd um you know, I didn't have any like connections in Washington or anything. Uh Jonah, I I went to community college and I kind of stumbled into journalism. I wanted to be a baseball writer and after some happy accidents I wind up coming to Washington and covering politics and and, and so I'd worked really hard and I finally got to this place where after covering Republican politics for like a decade, I decided to write this book and the book did really well. And, and I was getting all these accolades and I was really swaggering, feeling like, you know, hey, I've kind of made it. So my dad and my mom, they jump in their Chevy and they drive out to Washington for this book party. And um, my dad, who who had like a real like Rodney Dangerfield streak, just like uh, very like he was, you know, he was a deeply devout guy and a conservative Christian, but like could just crack a great joke to catch you off guard and, and didn't know how to dress. And just like, it was, he was, a, he was a funny guy to be around and we're at this party and yeah, he pulls me aside and just says, Hey, you see all these people here. And like, it's this big party at a Washington mansion. You know, I said, Oh yeah. And he's like, yeah, none of them are going to care about you in a week. And his point was, and we talked about this more during uh, his visit. His point was that, look, like, you've been given these skills and you've been given these talents. Uh, and do you really want to spend your whole career hanging around Washington? Do you really want to spend your whole career covering politics and writing about Trump and all this, all this crap? And, you know, he was really kind of nudging me saying, look, like, yeah, sure. You're at your mountaintop here, but like, is this really the mountaintop? Is this really the thing, you know? And, and he, he was also saying to me, think about what's, eternally significant, right? And and how you might apply your talents there. And I didn't know it at the time, of course, but that was pretty much the last conversation I had with him because he died really unexpectedly uh, uh, about a week after that. Yeah. And so it was good that he was, I mean, I mean, it's terrible when your parents go and, you know, but it's a blessing that he got to see you succeed at this thing and that you had to have that conversation where he was sort of, giving you counseling about your soul rather than just your career, which, you know, better you had that moment than, than not, you know, and, and my condolences, um, it, uh, it kind of reminds me of the story I told my dad about my dad in, in, a his eulogy where in college I took this like Myers-Briggs kind of test for this leadership seminar thing. And it had this, turns out I had only 
Only 4% of people take the test have my personality type, at least according to, I, I don't put a lot of stock in this stuff, but it's necessary for the story. And apparently what it said about me is that my personality doesn't change regardless of the circumstances. Like under pressure, I'm, I'm, I'm the same guy. And I was telling my dad about it and I was like, dad, you know, this is great. Like I'm a, apparently a really rare type where I don't buckle under pressure and I'm the same person under all circumstances so I can be relied upon. I'm a rock, dad. I'm a rock. <laughs> and my dad says, and my dad like never cursed, but he's like, yeah, that's, that's great, Jonah, unless you're an asshole. <laughs> and, and it was my dad's way of sort of telling me like, be a good person is more important. You know, that's the more important thing than any of this other stuff. And it always sort of stuck with me. And anyway, I, I like, I, 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 the reason, one of the reasons I like this story is because you are now sort of like, you know, a name, big name journalist guy. You got two best. We don't know if this one's a best. No, you just yet, jinxed it. it it'll be Thanks a, a lot for that. It'll be a bestseller. Yeah. Well, um, um, I'll go on Amazon like a monkey in a cocaine study and buy a lot. So uh, my prediction holds true. One of the things I liked about it, not as a religious point, although, you know, glory is fading and all that kind of stuff is, I think is valid is just like one of the things that's this Trump period has helped me learn on the conservative side is that a lot of the stuff that people assume was the most important things in your life. When they go away, you realize a lot of them, it's not that big a loss. You know, I mean, you regret the, the things you regret are the lost relationships, right? The lost friendships or the damaged friendships and that kind of thing. Like it pains me to tell the Bill Bennett story because I really love the guy. And, um, but, uh, like a lot of the Washington stuff is, um, or the journalism stuff, or, and I'm sure it's true about career stuff in New York, about finance or whatever you hit a certain stage, particularly when it's tested and you realize it really didn't matter as much as you might've thought it would have when you were younger and you were striving for it. And that the things that really do matter are like to be able to tell the story about your dad, you know, and have your dad see you and see that you're a good person and, and have, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, it did, I found it a kind of a very moving little moment in there. You know, I, I think I would add to it, Jonah, that like, I agree with everything you just said. And, you know, from my perspective, it's also um, it's it's a call to in in considering what matters and what doesn't matter. You know, where where is your life uh, without your career? Where is your life without certain relationships? Compare that to where is your life without your faith? Now, I I fully understand and appreciate that not everybody listening is religious. Uh, not everybody listening shares my particular religious convictions. Um, but I think the the great blessing for me in having that final time with my dad and then in sort of spending the next four years reporting on all of this and trying to unpack uh, my faith tradition and some of the things you and I were talking about earlier to make sense of this moment in American life, but specifically in American evangelical life. I mean, I, I, I've gotten the question repeatedly and I understand why, you know, why, like, how is your faith? Has your faith been damaged by this? And in fact, my faith is, is, is much stronger now than it was going into it, because when you start stripping away these other things and getting to this essence of, of who am I, whose am I, what am I here for? And why am I doing this? Um, you get to the answers that you weren't going to get to otherwise, I think, uh, at the risk of sounding um, 
you know, self-important uh, or grandiose. There's just, um, you know, I, I don't know uh, exactly how God's cosmic chessboard looks, but I have to think that um, ha- this relationship I had with my father and this final conversation I had with my father and sort of the path that it set me on um, was by design and was intentional and and what I've been able to what I've been able to to try to produce here is something that you know it it, it was it was painful but there's purpose found in that pain and and um and not everybody is that fortunate I I don't think and so I really feel blessed for having had to go through this so since we're on the topic I feel like I would be negligent if I didn't ask you why don't you tell people about the um the letter you got after you delivered your dad's eulogy yeah so I mean this was sort of the yeah, this was kind of the the spark, uh, you know, that that lit the fuse here. But basically, you know, when I when I went home to Michigan to my church, where again I'd grown up in, um, you know, I since I was a tiny little kid, and my dad had been the senior pastor there for going on thirty years. Um, when I went home for the funeral, it just so happened that because my previous book had been in the news so much, uh, and Rush Limbaugh had been like calling it up on his show and kind of giving me the business and talking about my unflattering revelations about Donald Trump and this, that, and the other thing. When I went back for the funeral, there were people like getting in my face, uh, uh, like confronting me, wanting to argue about politics, wanting to argue about Rush Limbaugh, wanting to argue about the deep state, all this stuff. And, um, and I was completely unprepared for it. I just, it wasn't, it hadn't crossed my mind. Um, so this was, the day of the visitation, the viewing, there's like a couple thousand people at this big church, you know, that, and you know, I, yeah, like one person after another just wanted to, wanted to argue politics while my dad's in a box a hundred feet away. And it was just, it was completely, it was completely insane and, and surreal. And so I had already written the eulogy, most of it, but I went home that night and just kind of reinserted some language. And, uh, and the next day I gave the eulogy and I kind of paused halfway through and kind of let some people have it and said, like, you know, Rush Limbaugh, like, really? Like, that's that's what's important to you here? Like, you know, kind of challenged them and said, listen, like, you know, if you're a Christian, like, what you're, what you're listening to matters. Your spiritual formation matters. And I, you know, maybe it was too lecturing. I don't know. But after that, um, we went to the cemetery and we buried my dad. And we came back home, my mom and my brothers and I. And just kind of collapsed onto the couches in the living room. It had been a long couple of days. And this lady from the church who was there helping to prepare a meal, she came over and handed me a letter that had my name on it. And I opened it up and it was a like page, full page long handwritten screed from a guy who was a friend of my dad's and who I'd known since I was a little kid. He'd been an elder at the church for a long time, basically just telling me that like I was doing the devil's work, that I was a part of the deep state undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, and that I should be ashamed of myself. But he also told me that all hope wasn't lost, that um, that if I would use my journalist skills to expose the deep state, then I would be restored in the in the in the in the eyes of God. You know, it's just one of these moments where I think we all have these at times in life where like something that has been abstractly a problem mm-hmm. becomes very much concretely a problem and um and 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 that for me without dramatizing it i mean that's just 
like I handed it to my wife and she read it. And my wife was a relatively recent convert to Christianity. Um, she was not raised a Christian. And my dad, she was like a daughter to my dad. And so she was grieving. We're all grieving. And she reads this and she's just like, what the hell is wrong with these people? And, you know, not to be cute or anything, but I kind of took that as my cue of like, yeah, what the hell is wrong? Like, what are we doing here? And that's that's kind of what set me on the path to try and write this book. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. So like I, I it's a weird thing for a lot of people to understand. Um, but when you say you've become sort of more grounded in your faith and thinking about how what would my life be without my faith kind of thing there is this again i say this often on this podcast the reason there's a reason this podcast is called the remnant right which is this reference to this essay by this guy albert j knock called isaiah's job and it's about the deeply biblical reference about you know the this sort of substratum of people who don't get caught up in the craziness of the times, right? Or the the corruption of the times. And it's a difficult thing. So like I grew up professionally in, in other ways, so ensconced in conservatism and the conservative movement, and by def, by extension, republicanism, that I didn't always appreciate where one, where, where the lines were. Because to me, it's fish don't know they're wet, right? And so good for Republicans, good for conservatives. And, you know, and every now and then when someone would behave like a jackass, you say so, or when somebody was playing with some dumb ideas, you'd say so. But for the most part, all one big happy family. We're all part of the tribe. I would defend, you know, Glenn Beck and my friend Andrew Breitbart, and and um, and I'll still defend Andrew on a lot of things. But and I'll defend Glenn on some. But that's not the point. Point is, is like when I said, okay, if this is what conservatism, I wrote this column, you know, which is one of the things that that led to. Um, I, I don't need to out other people, but other people sort of followed my lead on this, which was, I began to come saying, if this is what conservatism is going to be, then count me out. And the great thing about it was that I wasn't saying I was going to stop being a conservative. It was just like, I'm going to stop caring about the politics of conservatism in a certain way. All of a sudden I could see where these lines were, where like, I don't work for the RNC. I don't, my job is not to do what's best for Republicans, whoever the Republicans are. I think there are a lot of people who sincerely don't think that that's their job either. They just can't, they still can't see the lines because they stayed on the team and they still were telling themselves the same things I was telling myself. And so I always tell people I've never felt more politically homeless, but more ideologically grounded because now I, I get to say what I actually think is what conservatism should be. And it's my thing. It's my call to personal interpretation. That's fine. I think it's pretty, I can, I can argue in defense of it pretty well. But I, and I see that with people who, went through a very similar thing 
because you were never like a huge movement conservative guy or anything like that, but you were a serious Christian and you still are a serious Christian. But this break that we've been witnessing between, because I think a lot for a lot of evangelical Christians, it's the same sort of dynamic. It's like we're on this team and what's good for the, you know, the political people on the team is good for the religious people on the team. And then when you say, count me out, if this, you know, if, if Donald Trump really says his favorite Bible verse is an eye for an eye, that should be a problem for some Christians. And I say this as a guy who's like a big pro Old Testament guy, you know, and um, and so it's it, it, again, it's one of these things that sort of resonates as sort of a parallel experience, my, me being sort of from sort of mainstream conservative movement stuff and you being sort of from mainstream evangelicalism. You know, and Jonah, I would I would say like there's a. A fear out there. Of, you know, well, what happens when the reckoning comes, whether it's in a religious tribe or in a political tribe, cultural tribe, whatever, like what happens? Like when we have to kind of confront these realities and and these schisms and, you know, a lot of people are afraid to be homeless. They're afraid to to feel abandoned or to kind of lose their standing in, in the tribe, as it were. But part of the reason I wanted to write this is just to explain that, like, you know, and and I again, our, our friend Russ Moore, I need to credit him with this quote, but he, I've heard him say this a couple of times, like the natural state of Christianity is to be homeless. You're, you're not supposed to find your identity in anything other than being a follower of Jesus. You have a lot of Christians out there who, and I've heard this argument a lot uh, in the last couple of years while I've been doing this book. I'm getting hate mail like by the minute here. Uh, ever since uh, I started on the promotional tour uh, the last few days, people writing me from, you know, Christians, I, I they say, writing me from all over the place saying, you know, how dare you airing the church's dirty laundry? You know, the, 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 the church is the bride of Christ. Don't you know that you're doing the devil's work, this, that, and the other thing? And it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, I'm pretty sure that most of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament are written, uh, they are occasion, they were called occasional letters. They're written to address occasions inside the church. And most of those occasions are really bad. It's people, you know, it's, it's sex scandals, it's power struggles, it's major personality clashes, it's idolatry. It's, we are supposed to confront the things that go wrong in our tribes. We, we, we are supposed, these reckonings are good things is my point. Um, we are afraid of them for understandable and obvious reasons, but we should embrace these opportunities to step back and to really have a full accounting for, you know, what's happened, what's gone wrong, where can we be better? You know, I've, I've said this to a number of pastors who I've spent time with. I said, look, you know, part of the job in, in journalism here is, is shining light into darkness. Now, inevitably, when you do that, when you shine a light into darkness, you are going to expose some things that are false and that are ugly and that are wrong. But you're also going to illuminate some things that are true and some things that are beautiful and some things that are right. And I just think whether it's your experience in the conservative movement, whether it's my experience in the evangelical movement, ultimately, that 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 light and that transparency is the best thing that we could hope for because i think we can all look at this objectively and agree that something isn't right that, you know that, that that something here has gone gone awry and how do we go about reclaiming it without 
having an honest conversation in the first place. And, and, you know, if nothing else, hopefully we can have that conversation. Okay. I, 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 that would be a great place to end, but I would lose my rank punditry union card if I didn't do some very (laughs) quick rank punditry. What did you make of the Vanderplatz endorsement of DeSantis? Is this a sign of healing progress? For the for evangelicals, um, what do you make of it? No, well, so because you have to remember, you know, Vanderplatz, uh, and we're talking about you know Bob Vanderplatz, of course, in Iowa, the the kind of evangelical kingmaker there. Although I think he's less, more of like maybe a prince maker at this stage. Um, you know, Bam, Bob Vanderplatz, he was a huge Ted Cruz supporter in 2016, and in fact, I even recount in my book about how. After Donald Trump botched two Corinthians in his speech at Liberty University, Bob Bob Vanderplatz was one of the people in Iowa going around making fun of Donald Trump publicly for it. And Trump said that Vanderplatz was a piece of shit, uh, told told some other said said Vanderplatz, among other evangelicals, he said, you know, these so-called Christians hanging around with Ted are some real pieces of shit. And so a lot of these people, uh, they have never had much fondness for Trump. I think they kind of came around during his presidency and, and tried their best to, uh, you know, cheer for the team. But they've been waiting for an opportunity to try and break from Trump. And that's a small minority of people, Jonah. So I don't put much stock into it. I still think that, by and large, the evangelical movement is completely supportive of Trump. They they are they are. Their political identity is wrapped up in Trump and. What's interesting is that we saw a moment, a fleeting moment, where that looked to be in jeopardy uh, after the 2022 midterms when Trump came out and threw pro-lifers under the bus and basically, uh, you know, not only threw pro-lifers under the bus for the 2022 midterm result, but then started coming out and bashing some of the more restrictive abortion policy proposals around the country as in Florida's proposal, there was a moment there where a lot of evangelicals and certainly a lot of people in the pro-life community, they, who had been loyal to Trump, very loyal to Trump, they stepped back and were questioning openly whether they would continue on with him. And you saw right around that period, you saw some pretty significant chunks come out of his support among white evangelicals. You saw that in a lot of polling at the time. And there was really that moment when we, I wrote about this at the time, a lot of us kind of looked at it and said, okay, well, maybe, maybe the dam really is bursting here. And, and what changed it, Jonah, was really shortly after that, Alvin Bragg delivered that first indictment. And I mean, just sure as sure as can be, Correlation isn't always causation, but in this case, it very clearly was. His numbers with white evangelicals went right back up. And I guess this brings us full circle back to the point about kind of the the persecution complex, the martyrdom complex. I cannot tell you how many churches, uh, Christian settings, individual uh, evangelicals I've spent time with in the last year who have completely immerse themselves into this narrative of Trump suffering righteously on our behalf, you know, like he, like almost a sacrificial lamb dynamic. Um, And with every new indictment, every new court case, every new testimony, um, every new deposition, it just, it, it seems to cement 
his support that much uh, that that much stronger with with the evangelical base, the white evangelical base of the party. So, barring something completely miraculous, it's hard to see how DeSantis or Haley or any of these folks are able to chip away at that support. Yeah, it's, I, this argument, which I, I I agree with you entirely, is a matter of political analysis. But this argument, because he's persecuted, we have to vote for him for president, drives me crazy. Um, because it is not a rational, coherent argument. It is a psychological, petulant argument. Um, Richard Jewell, remember the guy who was the Atlanta, uh, falsely accused of being the Olympic bomber in Atlanta, right? Definitely persecuted by the government. 100%. That doesn't mean we should have elected a security guard president of the United States, right? I mean, like, like, like fight for him. Give money to his legal defense fund. But the idea that because Donald Trump is allegedly being persecuted, and I, I do think the Bragg indictment is garbage, but um, not that he's innocent, just I don't think it should have been brought. And um, but the idea that, yeah, we should vote for this guy who's so manifestly unfit for office because his enemies are doing mean things to him. There's just there's some connective tissue intellectually there that's missing. And it, the argument just drives me batty. All right. So last question, though. Looking forward, I go back and forth on this. You know, there are a lot of liberals who understandably, and liberals have their own tribal problems understanding politics too, right? They look at Trump using phrases like vermin, right? And I'm your retribution and all of this craziness with the, you know, we're going to get lawyers who know what time it is and all this garbage. Um, and they make a point, which I think is a perfectly valid point politically. Look, the really disturbing thing here isn't that Trump is saying disturbing things. It's that rank and file Republican voters like it. That's the scary part, right? And I get it. Um, and it depresses me. At the same time, I honestly think that if Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or any of these others said some of the things that Trump has said or switched sides on socialized medicine, abortion, and all this kind of stuff the way Trump has done, they would all go down in flames pretty quickly, which is to say that the actual sort of muscle memory of the GOP is more Reaganite than we think. All three debates have basically been, with the exception of Vivek Ramaswamy, pretty Reaganite in the terms of the debate. Um, and so what that tells me is that, that should Donald Trump, you know, one day on the golf course say, does anyone smell burnt hair and keel over from an aneurysm, uh, that the Trumpism is going to have a very rapid half-life because no one else, you know, Steve Bannon has tried to put mini-me's out there, Trump mini-me's, you know, in 2018 primaries, and they all did terrible. Um, Josh Hawley's not great at this. You know, uh, J.D. Vance, say what you will about him. He's actually figured out a brand that is not actually Trump emulative. It's more sort of MAGA doctrinaire kind of thing, but he doesn't have the personality. And so the question is, is like, do you think these problems with the GOP, but also with Christianity, do they start to heal after Trump is departed this mortal coil? Or um, do you think that these are problems that are going to continue to degenerate for the long haul? You know, I would actually answer it two ways, Jonah. I, uh, so I do think that in the evangelical Christian context, I'm pretty optimistic. The reason I'm optimistic is because if you spend time around younger Christians, 
um, younger self-identified or or younger younger self-identified evangelicals, younger Christians who grew up in the evangelical tradition but don't necessarily identify that way. But we're talking like you know reformed conservative Christians, right? They are completely appalled by what they've seen in the church. They want nothing to do with it. Like even at a school like Liberty, where I spend two chapters of the book reporting in depth on Liberty and get people to go on the record and and really do kind of a thorough expose into what's happened there. Like the the kids at Liberty are like up in arms. Like they've got torches and pitchforks. Like they 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 are ready to overthrow the old order, right? So there's a real awareness, a real awakening that's happened within the younger generations of evangelicalism. I don't know that I've necessarily seen that same level of awakening in the younger generations of conservatism. It's not like I've seen elements of it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know that I see it in a sort of a sweeping way. And I do think that you're right. You know, the, 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 the Trump imitators, the Trump copycats have fallen flat so far, um, but there will be others. And, you know, there, there's, there's, there's time here for uh, another act to emerge that can sort of tap into and, 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 and channel some of that, some of the, 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 the Trumpy appeal. Um, I do sense that there is a generational break in conservatism and in republicanism, but, but I think it's going to take longer to play out. I really do. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the demographics of the matter at hand, like it's hard to get to a place where you see like a kind of a wholesale reorientation of our politics because it's binary. Um, to, to so many people, which is just to say that like for a lot of younger conservatives, even if they're a little bit turned off by Trump's rhetoric, even if they don't really consider themselves MAGA people, they are completely horrified by so much of what they see from the left that in a way it almost, it kind of drives them deeper and deeper into the MAGA movement. And once you're, once you're there, you're kind of, you know, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe, maybe you can live with this. Um, so I've always felt, Jonah, you and I have had this conversation. I've always felt that, you know, you don't in politics, like you can't beat something with nothing. And I really think in this age of kind of, I, I, you know, character driven, persona driven identity politics on the right, you really do need a person. You need, you need someone to fearlessly formulate a counter vision to what Trump has offered. Um, you know, DeSantis hasn't done that. I think Haley could do it. She's too scared to do it. Um, there's just, uh, that's, 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 I think what could ultimately break the spell, but it feels like it's going to be a while. Uh, maybe I'm wrong and maybe that's too pessimistic, but I have not seen anything to indicate that this fever is close to breaking. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, you may be right. I have bad. I have days where I think you're right, and I have days where I don't. I do think that the next Republican president, a whole bunch of people who have been wearing their MAGA hats, are going to take them off and put on their, you know, Nikki Haley hat or their Ron DeSantis hat. And because whoever the next Republican president is, they're going to have the 
the liberals or the left or the Marxists or the vermin as their enemies and in an area of negative polarization and negative partisanship and all of that, so much of our partisanship is really about hating the other party than actually liking your own. And um, so there'll be some diehards. I mean, Flynn will still be, I don't know, drinking his own urine or whatever the hell he's doing. And, and, and you know, <laughs> Steve Bannon will, you know, uh, be flapping his bat wings. But I, I think a lot of like the talk radio people, at least for a while, they will rally to whoever the Republican standard bearer is because a lot of them, at the end of the day, are really more anti-Democrat than they are pro-Republican or pro-conservative. And you got to put something on TV and, you know, on the air and they'll pick those fights. But I could also be wrong. You know, I, 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 I don't know. No, that's that. I think you're you're making a smart distinction, which is like there's a difference between there's a difference between sort of really breaking the fever and having the soul of the Republican Party won back away from where which it where it is today, which is like full on Trumpy. There's a difference between that sort of um, sharp break and just a like kind of a, a a softer return to something resembling normalcy. Um, and you're right. I mean, that might not be as far off as we think, but I do think this question of the longer game of of the drift of conservatism and the implosion of the Republican Party and how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together to have a, a, a sane political party led by sane, rational political actors. Um, like when you see what's happened Jonah, like at the state level with state party, like, I mean, it is like, we've, it is astonishing. I don't think people like there are, you have like state parties that have like, like a couple thousand bucks in the bank. Like they're just completely hollowed out and, and they're totally unserious and incapable as political entities. So that restoration process, I think is a very long-term project, but the thing you're describing, I agree because of negative polarization, it could be a quicker turnaround. All right, Tim Alberta, uh, thank you so much for being on. I apologize. I wanted to get to the Liberty University stuff because I'm fascinated by all that. I'll have to have you back. Everyone will just have to buy the book so that they can read all about it. Um, um, because who doesn't want to read more about Jerry Falwell Jr.'s uh, Fall from Grace? Um, and uh, But no, really, uh, I highly recommend it. Tim's one of my favorite journalists. And um, he is better at saying the first name over and over again of podcast hosts better than any other guest we've ever had. It is amazing. It's, it, he uses my name, Jonah, as a comma in like every third sentence. And I think it's really fat, kind of a fascinating quirk. I don't know. All that media, all that media training paid off. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how I could use it to beat you at poker, but I think it's fascinating tell of, some, of something. So <laughs> anyway. You couldn't. You could not use it to beat me at poker. Uh, <laughs> this is fun. This is fun, my friend. Thanks for having me. All right, Tim Alberto's left the studio. Um, I was just apologizing to him that we didn't get deeper into the Liberty University stuff because I am fascinated with that stuff. And then we got into a, anyway, we talked about a bunch of things after the tape stopped rolling, even though I know we don't have tape anymore. And it makes me sad. I do recommend the book. Again, as I said, I'm only about 40 pages into it, but it reads really quickly and it reads really well. And I think it's a really important story. Um, and, uh, what else do I have? Not much. Christmas, Hanukkah is coming. This is going to be a gift subscription to the dispatch season. So uh, start thinking about that. We're going to have some offers. It's going to be great. Good for you. Good for everybody. Um, good for us. Um, and uh, I'll save the rest for you know the solo. So with that, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. 
No, you won't. This is a podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.